All right, well, as folks are filing in, um, let's take our Bibles and open them to the book of Zechariah. Chapter 14 and verse 16. And as you're turning there, just a little bit of a review. This will be the last time, I think, you'll have to listen to this review. Because I'm thinking we can finish the book tonight. As you know, God raised up the prophet Zechariah along with his contemporary Haggai to motivate the nation of Israel coming back from the captivity to get busy rebuilding the second temple that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed, the first temple, 70 years earlier. So everything in the book, you know, revolves around that purpose. The book, as you know, has four major sections to it. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, is an introductory call to repentance. And then you get to chapter 1, verse 7, through the end of chapter 6, and it's eight night visions. So eight visions Zechariah saw in one night. And as we've gone through these, you know, each of those visions in some form or substance relates to the need to rebuild the second temple. And then part three of the book, chapters seven and eight, somebody shows up a delegation with a question. And their question is, should we keep mourning the destruction of the first temple now that we're rebuilding the second temple. So they had it right down to the exact day when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the first temple and they went into Babylon for 70 years, for 70 straight years, every every time the year rolled around to the date, uh, they would, you know, go through this ritual, you know, of mourning the destruction of the temple. And... This ritual was so strong and powerful that they just, it just kind of took on a life of its own within the nation of Israel. So the question that's given to Zechariah in chapter 7 verses 1 through 3 from leadership in the nation is should we keep doing this ritual? And that leads into two chapters there. Chapter 7 verse 4 to the end of chapter 8, where God is basically speaking through Zechariah and basically telling people that you shouldn't mourn the destruction of the temple. What you ought to be mourning is the reason why the first temple was destroyed. So they got wrapped up in the effect, the destruction of the temple, and they weren't paying attention to the cause It was their covenant violations that led to the destruction of the temple. So the response is you've pretty much got the cart before the horse. And that's sort of the power of religion, religiosity. 
you can start doing things um, and you sort of start to strain at a gnat, as Jesus said, but you end up swallowing the camel and you forget what the ritual is about. So the Lord in that section explains he's not interested in empty ritualism. What he's interested in is a, is a heart that wants to obey him. And then you move into the fourth part of the book, um, chapters 9 through 14, which are two burdens. The first burden is in chapters 9 through 11, where Zechariah is predicting 500 years before Jesus shows up that the nation is going to reject their king. And it's in that section, chapter 11, he even predicts the king being pierced. He predicts the amount of silver that he's going to be betrayed for, 30 pieces of silver. And all of the blessings that God wanted to do in and through Israel in terms of setting up the kingdom through Israel will be in a state of postponement. Not cancellation, but postponement, because the nation will reject her king. And I'm very happy the book doesn't end there, um, because you move into chapters 12 through 14, and it's burden number two, where it's a description of there's going to arise a, a time in Israel's history when she will accept her king. And that's the events of the Great Tribulation period etc., when the nation will come to her senses, recognize that her Messiah came at least 2,000 years ago, they will receive Christ as their king, and then all of the kingdom blessings that had been in a state of postponement for 2,000 years will then become a reality for the nation of Israel and the whole world as the kingdom comes to the earth. So chapter 12 is Israel's physical and spiritual salvation where they will mourn for the one that that they have pierced. They will look upon the one that they have pierced. That's in chapter 12, verse 10. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And at that point, God is going to bring a spiritual cleansing of the nation and he's going to deliver them from the forces that are threatening to wipe them out in the great tribulation. And then when Jesus returns to planet earth, and we're not dealing here with the rapture, um, the rapture is something different. This is the second advent at the end of the seven year tribulation period. When the nation is in a state of repentance and Jesus returns to rescue them, he will then establish his kingdom. And chapter 14 sort of ends with what the kingdom is going to be like. So first, Jerusalem is going to be delivered, chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. We've looked at that. Then we looked at chapter 14, verses 8 through 11, where we saw the kingdom conditions that will come to the earth. Don't look for these before before Jesus comes back. These are things only that are going to happen after Jesus comes back. 
And so this, we believe, is the correct understanding of Bible prophecy, which is called premillennialism. Jesus comes back pre or first, and then the kingdom manifests itself on the earth. So we talked about Jerusalem's waters, <coughs> Christ's earthly reign, uh, topographical changes that will take place to the planet, what the millennial Jerusalem will be like. And it's during that time period that God is going to judge Israel's enemies, verses 12 through 15. We saw that last week with the four Ps, the plague, the panic, the panic, excuse me, the plunder. I had to have a fourth P, so I just called verse 15 their pet, their pets, because it deals with their animals. And then the book ends, verses 16 through 21, which is what we're going to try to look at tonight, with what worship uh, is going to be like in the millennial kingdom. So that's a pretty interesting topic. I mean, how exactly is the Lord going to be worshipped once the kingdom age starts? And this is a great way to end a book if you're a priest like Zechariah. And one of your functions is temple activity and temple worship. And it's a great way to end the book as the Holy Spirit is giving Zechariah insight because he's trying to get his original audience to rebuild temple number two by sort of giving them a glimpse of God's purposes for the temple in the millennium. You know, God apparently thinks the temple is a big deal. And so that's sort of an incentive for them to get busy rebuilding it in the present following the Babylonian captivity. So the book ends with this uh, paragraph. These are three more Ps. We have the pilgrimage, verse 16, the punishment, verses 17 through 19, and then the the purity, uh, the ritual purity of worship in the thousand-year reign of Christ, verses 20 and 21. So notice, if you will, verse 16, the, the pilgrimage. And look at what verse 16 says. It says, Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year, to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the feast of booths. Now notice this first expression here. Um, it will come about that any who are left of all of the nations that went against Jerusalem. So what does it mean when it says whoever is left? And it's talking about two judgments that will take place on the earth for tribulation survivors. Um, The Bible tells us that there will be people that survive the great tribulation. Some will be saved, some will be unsaved. So the issue is, well, which ones get into the millennial kingdom and which ones go into Hades? Well, the unbelievers who happen to survive will be cast off the earth into Hades, and believers who survive the tribulation will enter the millennial kingdom, 
not in resurrected bodies, but in non-glorified, uh, normal bodies like we have them today. And so the millennium will begin only with mortals, non-resurrected people that happen to be saved. Uh, they are called at the sheep and goat judgment on the far left column there, Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. They are called sheep. They enter the kingdom. The goats are cast off the earth into Hades. And as that judgment is happening for the Gentile survivors, there is a parallel judgment for the surviving Jews that's going to take place in Acts 20, verses 30 through 33 through 44 where they will have to pass under the shepherd's rod. And so unbelieving Jews, just like unbelieving Gentiles, will be purged off the earth immediately and cast into Hades. And those that pass under the shepherd's rod, who are believing Jews, mortals, will enter the millennial kingdom. And they also, along with the believing Gentiles that enter the millennial kingdom, will begin to repopulate the earth. So that's what it's talking about, I believe, when it says, then it will come about that any who are left of all of the nations that went against Jerusalem. So the nations that went against against Jerusalem in the tribulation period, most of those people will be killed in the tribulation. Those that happen to survive that happen to be unbelievers, they'll be purged off the earth and cast into Hades. And only um, believing mortals, Jew and Gentile, will enter the millennial kingdom. So this chart here shows you the four judgments in Scripture, and I just described two of them. Those are not to be confused with the third column, the Bema Seat judgment, which is the judgment for the church which is not on the earth, but it's in heaven, following the rapture, where rewards will be given or not given. That's not a salvific judgment. It's a judgment to determine rewards. And and those three judgments are not to be confused with the great white throne judgment that's described in the far right-hand corner, or column, I should say, which will take place after the millennium. It's described in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, and that's where people throughout all of history, where their name is not found written in the Lamb's Book of Life, um, they are cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. So by my count, there's basically four total judgments in the Bible, yet future, and they're all different. And very sadly, what people do today is they just try to, they just mix them all together as if they're the same. And I'm here to tell you that a literal reading of the Bible doesn't allow that. They're all different, they take place at different times, and they have totally different functions. So what I'm talking about here is the sheep and goat and the judgment of the Jews. That purges off surviving unbelievers. And so the millennial kingdom will begin with all believers that at that particular point in history happen to be mortals. It's just like after the flood. 
where you have eight, eight survivors. They're all saved. They're not resurrected. They have a sin nature. I mean, what was in the ark, eight sin natures, when you think about it. And the world began all over again through Noah, Noah's three sons, and all of their respective wives. They repopulated the earth. And so that's a, a similar kind of analogy of what's happening at the beginning of the thousand-year uh, millennial kingdom. But you continue with verse 16, and it says, Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Now you'll notice here that the regal kingship authority of Christ is portrayed as something totally future. And this is where it's helpful to understand Christ's three offices. His three offices are prophet, priest, and king. And we've gone through these before, but he functioned as prophet in his first coming, where he was calling the nation of Israel to repentance, which is what prophets, the prophets of old did. Then, subsequent to his ascension, he took on his second office, where he is now, and this is the office that relates directly to us, where he is functioning as high priest, not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. And if you want to understand the present, what's called the present session of Christ functioning as high priest, not on David's throne on the earth, but at, on, at the Father's right hand, the book of Hebrews is set up to help us understand that ministry. It's a tremendous ministry he's doing right now. But it's not to be confused with his third ministry where he is functioning as king. He is not functioning as king right now. I realize that ruins a lot of Christian worship songs. But think about this for a minute. If he was functioning as king right now, Satan would not be ruling this world. So quite obviously, he begins to function as king after he returns for a saved nation of Israel at the end of the tribulation period and starts his third ministry, his ministry as king, where he will rule from David's throne. Jesus has been anointed as king, but he is not yet reigning as king. And if you want to understand exactly where Jesus is right now, you would study the book of 1 Samuel. Because David is a type of Jesus. David was anointed as king over the nation of Israel in 1 Samuel 16 but he did not actually function as king over the nation of Israel until Saul had been deposed and that doesn't ha- he doesn't actually arrive on the throne until 2 Samuel 2 and also in 2 Samuel 5 
So Jesus is king. He has been anointed as king, but he is not yet reigning as king because there is a Saul-like usurper on the throne right now, and his name is the devil or Satan. So what we're reading about here is not his ministry as prophet. It's not his ministry as priest. This is his future ministry as king, what the kingdom is actually going to be like when he asserts himself over the earth. There's not going to be a Saul-like competitor. That's why Satan is portrayed as going into the abyss. Revelation uh, 20, verses 2 and 3 at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. And until that day in history comes, he might be anointed as king, but he's not yet reigning as king. So he's reigning as king. You'll notice from verse 16 that he's reigning from Jerusalem. It says, then it will come about that any who are left of the nations that went up against Jerusalem will go from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Verse 17, and it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king. So it's very clear once his thousand-year kingdom starts that he is going to be reigning from the city of Jerusalem. And that isn't front-page news if you're a good Bible student and you're following the writings of the prophets that preceded Zechariah. Isaiah, uh, already, you know, two, three hundred years before Zechariah had these prophecies, talked about this time period. He says in Isaiah 2, verse 2, Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and the nations will stream to it. And many people will say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations. He will render decisions for many peoples. They will hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn of war. So it's very clear that the headquarters of this millennial kingdom is not Washington, D.C. Thank God for that. But it is the literal city of Jerusalem. This is why when Satan is let loose out of the abyss, as described in the book of Revelation, Satan immediately attacks the city of Jerusalem. Because he knows where the authority is. Revelation 20 verses 7 through 9 says, When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, not not to be confused with Ezekiel 38 and 39. Gog and Magog to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they come up on the broad plain of the earth and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Now track 
the expression beloved city through the Psalms. And you'll see that the beloved city always refers to the city of Jerusalem. So Satan knows where the authority is. And so when he stimulates this worldwide rebellion at the end of the thousand years, he immediately attacks the city of Jerusalem. Robert Thomas, a wonderful revelation scholar and teacher, says, quote, at the end of the millennium, that city, i.e. Jerusalem, will be Satan's prime objective with his rebel army because Israel will be leader again among the nations. So verse 16 says the nations during the millennial kingdom have to go worship Jesus as king in Jerusalem in celebration of the Feast of Booths. So what is the Feast of Booths? Well, Leviticus chapter 23 gives us the seven Levitical feasts. Uh, One of them is called the Feast of Booths, sometimes in Hebrew called Sukkot where it was one of Israel's feast days to commemorate God's provision for the nation as they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years in between Egypt and the conquest of Canaan, where God miraculously provided for them every step of the way. I mean, the shoes that they were wearing didn't even wear out for 40 years. And every day, with the exception of the Sabbath, because you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, there was manna on the ground for them to collect and eat the miraculous provision of God. Manna in Hebrew is, what is it? It's what it means. What is that? Well, it's God's provision for you before you enter Canaan. And like clockwork, it appeared Every single day. Until they entered Canaan under Joshua and the land was capable of sustaining its inhabitants. And that's when the manna stopped. But it was the faithful provision of God for 40 uh, years. And Booth's Sukkot um, commemorates that. It's one of the feast days of Israel. So apparently the Feast of Booths is going to be celebrated again during the Millennial Kingdom. Now, when you talk like this, everybody gets real upset because they say, well, if the Feast of Booths gets celebrated again during the Millennium, that means we're going back under the Mosaic Law. And I thought, we're not under the Mosaic Law anymore. So this is why I very much appreciate what Arnold Fruchtenbaum says in his Footsteps of the Messiah, because he talks about this. And here he's talking about people that do not want to take Ezekiel's temple, the millennial temple, literally, because they think, oh my goodness, if that comes back, then it's retrogression back to the Mosaic Law. So Dr. Fruchtenbaum answers that objection as follows. He says, there are usually objections to taking these sacrifices literally. The first objection, this would mean a return to the sacrificial system of the Mosaic law, which ended when the Messiah died and therefore violates all that the New Testament teaches about the termination of the law as a rule of life. 
And then Dr. Fruchtenbaum answers this objection. He says, while there are many similarities with the sacrifices of the Mosaic law, as there are between the sacrifices of Noah and Moses, both Moses and Noah had sacrifices, but those were two different systems. He's saying, in the same way, the differences show that they are not the same. It was these very differences that kept the rabbis from accepting Ezekiel into the Hebrew canon for some time. The rabbis were very suspicious of the book of Ezekiel and its descriptions of millennial sacrifices in the fourth temple because it didn't really fit exactly with the law of Moses. They eventually accepted it in to the Hebrew scripture, but they were suspicious of it for a long time. They debated this for quite a while. Fruchtenbaum says these differences include the following. Now, in his Footsteps of the Messiah, he gives you 20 differences, which I'm not going to give you now, between the law of Moses and Ezekiel's sacrifices. And then Fruchtenbaum concludes all these differences show that this is a not return, this is not a return to the law of Moses, but is a new system under kingdom law. And so it does not violate the New Testament, which teach it, uh, the New Test, what the New Testament teaches concerning the termination of the law with Messiah's death. So what's coming in the kingdom age is not the law of Moses. It looks like the law of Moses in some respects, but there's critical differences. What it is is kingdom law. So similarity does not mean equality. You can't say, oh, there's sacrifices in Noah's time and there's sacrifices in Moses' time, therefore the Noahic system and Moses' system are the same. That's faulty logic. That's like saying, okay, I've got two cars in my garage. They look a lot the same. They both have license plates. They both have a paint job. They both have steering wheels, seat belts. A lot of similarities between those two cars. Therefore, car A equals car B. That's a logical fallacy where you're assuming similarity is equality. What is being described here relating to worship of the Lord at Jerusalem on the Feast of Booths looks very similar to the Law of Moses, but it is not exactly the same as the Law of Moses. Apparently, it's a new system of law uh, that Arnold Fruchtenbaum just calls kingdom law. So therefore, the millennial kingdom is just not is just not a carte blanche return to the Mosaic law. It's similar to the Mosaic law, but it's a different legal system entirely. I mean, Texas law is very similar to California law. I mean, both have laws against stealing. But if I steal something in Texas even though I'm from California, I'm not going to be tried in California. Now, frankly, if I stole something, I'd probably rather be tried in California than Texas. So the two legal systems, um, boy, they look similar, 
but they're not one and the same. That's sort of how to understand this Feast of Booths issue. This looks real similar to the Mosaic Law, but it's not identical to the Mosaic Law. You know, it's what we would call kingdom kingdom law. So apparently during the Millennial Kingdom, people are going to have to take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship Jesus on the Feast of Booths because that's where he's going to be. He's not going to be in heaven at the Father's right hand like he is today. You will have to go to Jerusalem to worship Jesus Christ. So pilgrimages to Jerusalem will be common during the Millennial Kingdom, which is one of my selling points in getting people to come to our Jerusalem tours because my point is, well, you're going to visit Jerusalem one way or the other. Might as well go now and get the lay of the land just to kind of see what what life is going to be like during the Millennial Kingdom, a little glimpse of it. So that's the pilgrimage. And then you go down to verses 17 through 19, which is the punishment. It says in verse 17, it will come about that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on the on them. In other words, no no moisture. It's going to be like it is, I guess, here in Texas. In other words, if you won't submit to the rain, R-E-I-G-N of Jesus during the millennium, then you get no physical rain, R-A-I-N. So obviously... You've got rebels in the millennium because some people won't want to go. Now, where in the world do these rebels come from? Well, I explained that earlier. These are the descendants of those who survived the tribulation. They're called sheep. They go into the millennial kingdom in non-resurrected, non-glorified bodies. They still have a sin nature. And who do they pass that sin nature on to? Their children, and as the earth is being repopulated, the sin nature is being passed down. That's why Satan, when he comes out of the abyss, is able to stimulate a worldwide revival. Because the earth will be populated during this time period with people with sin natures. They still have a propensity to sin. Now you might be worried, oh my gosh, what if one of those is me and I don't go to Jerusalem to worship the king? Shame on me. Well, this isn't concerning you. Because you, as a member of the church, will be in a resurrected body. And when do you get that resurrected body? At the point of the rapture. And Old Testament saints and tribulation martyrs will be resurrected as well in what's called the first resurrection. And they'll be in resurrected bodies too. Now, once you're in your resurrected, glorified body, there's no sin nature in it. So you'll be in a state of perfect obedience and holiness. I mean, you wouldn't be able to sin in the millennial kingdom if you wanted to, and you won't even want to. But there's this other class of people, you follow, that have entered the kingdom, passed through the sheep and goat judgment, 
pass through the judgment in the wilderness and they will enter the kingdom in non-resurrected bodies. And it's their descendants that will start to resent Jesus. They're living in a perfect world and yet they don't like Jesus. Which shows you that man's evil comes from his heart and not his environment. That's a great point to learn because the world system says the opposite. If you want to fix people, you fix the environment. You fix the income, you fix education. The problem is if you educate a, a, a white-collar, a blue-collar thief, what does he become? He becomes a white-collar thief. I mean, there's, something has to happen to people more than more education. You educate a thief, you enhance his ability to steal. His nature has to be changed. And this proves it because they're living in perfection and yet they're hostile to Jesus Christ. So it's a real interesting time where you got two categories of people, resurrected and non-resurrected. It's very similar to the 40-day period in between Christ's resurrection and ascension. The book of Acts covers that. Where Jesus is in a resurrected body, yet he's interacting with his disciples. Thomas is touching his hands and side. They're eating together. Um, they're, they're asking him questions. He's giving them answers. And so there's an interaction for 40 days between a resurrected man in a resurrected body and the non-resurrected disciples. If you can think of that, that's what the millennium is like for a thousand years. So this group of rebels here is not you. So you don't have to worry about it. It's that descendants of those who survived the tribulation and entered the kingdom in their non-resurrected bodies. There is a big push in theology to ignore all of this. And just say, oh, this is the eternal state. Forget the thousand years. Let's just take all these prophecies and jam them to the right-hand side of the screen there. Let's just make these the eternal state. Well, as my professor, Dr. Toussaint, used to say, that dog won't hunt. Because in the eternal state, there's no evil. These are all of the things absent from the eternal state. No Satan, no sea, no death, crying, mourning, or pain, no sun, moon, temple, night, no evil, no curse. It says of the eternal state, Revelation 21, verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain for the first things have passed away. There is a world of difference between the thousand-year kingdom and the eternal state. In the thousand-year kingdom, Revelation 20, sin is restrained. In the eternal state, sin is removed. In the thousand-year kingdom, the curse is restrained, but in the eternal state, the curse is removed. In the thousand-year kingdom, there's still death. It'll be uncommon, but the mortals will have the potential of dying. But there is no death in the eternal state. 
The thousand-year kingdom is you'll have mortals and resurrected people, as I tried to explain earlier, interacting with each other. But in the eternal state, it's only resurrected people. In the millennium, you still have to evangelize. Because the descendants of the survivors of the tribulation aren't necessarily believers. But in the eternal state, everybody's destiny is sealed. There's no need to evangelize. The millennium is a renovation of the earth. After the tribulation, the eternal state is a brand new creation. The millennium is temporary. It lasts a thousand years. The eternal state lasts forever. The millennium is transitional. It transitions us into the eternal state, but the eternal state is non-transitional because it lasts forever. The millennium has time. It lasts a thousand years. The eternal state, it will last forever. In the millennium, there's going to be luminaries like the sun, moon, and stars. In fact, the sun, Isaiah 30, verse 26 says, is going to be seven times brighter than what it currently is. But in the eternal state, there are no luminaries, the sun, moon, and stars, because Jesus, the sun, S-U-N, excuse me, S-O-N, illuminates in the place of the S-U-N sun. In the millennium, there's death amongst mortals, but no death in the eternal state. In the millennium, there's satanic activity at the end when Satan is let out of the bottomless pit to stimulate a rebellion in the descendants of the mortals. But Satan is not active at all. He's finished in the eternal state. There's some rebellion, as we're looking at here, in the millennium, but there is no rebellion in the eternal state. So you can't just, um, which is what people are doing today, they're trying to take the millennium and the eternal state, and they're just trying to merge them together and act like we're all one big happy family at the end. And the Bible is not going to allow you to do that any more than it allows you to take the four judgments that we looked at earlier and just jam them all together. The more committed you are to literal interpretation, which is what our church believes, literal interpretation of the whole Bible, the more you start to see these distinctions. I mean, these these are distinctions that you see not because you want to see them necessarily, or you're trying to force these distinctions. You see them because a, a plain reading of the Bible yields these distinctions. So, you go back to verse 17, and it says, And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. These are the survivors of the tribulation who passed... Under the shepherd's rod as Jews, Ezekiel 20, verses 33 through 38, they've gone into the millennial kingdom in their mortal bodies and they've had children and their children have had children and the earth has been repopulated. That judgment of passing under the shepherd's rod is all laid out in Ezekiel 20, 33 through 38, 
Verse 34 says, I will bring you out of the peoples and gather you from the lands where you have been scattered. Verse 35, there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. These are the Jewish survivors of the tribulation have to face this because Jesus is ferreting out which ones are saved, which ones are unsaved. Only saved are getting into the kingdom. And he's doing the exact same thing with the Gentiles in the sheep and goat judgment in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. Verse 38, it says, I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. So you see very clearly here, verse 17, it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. It's only at this time in redemptive biblical history is Jesus functioning as king. Only when something like this happens, face-to-face judgment, the direct rule of God present on planet earth, can we say that Jesus is not just anointed as king, which he is today, but he's actually reigning as king. I mean, this is not just a 1 Samuel 16 thing where David was anointed as king. This is like a 2 Samuel 5 thing where Saul is dead and David is ruling from Jerusalem. So you look at verse 17 and it says, It will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. They get an immediate drought for failing to honor kingdom law. Revelation 20 verses 8 and 9 describes a rebellion at the end. And it says it will come, it will come out, will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Verse 7, this is when the thousand years are completed and Satan is released from his prison. He's let out of solitary confinement. He's been in solitary confinement for a thousand years. Did solitary confinement fix his problems? No, he's got the exact same God-hating nature that he had when he rebelled against God in the heavenlies. So he's not rehabilitated at all through prison. He's just looking for an opportunity to get loose. And God allows it. For what purpose? To stimulate or expose the rebellion that already exists in the hearts of the mortals at the end of the tribulation. And it's a big group. Because it says they came up out of the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints. It talks here about those involved in the rebellion are like sand of the seashore. And look at the judgment. God doesn't put up with this very long. Because it says fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Because we're not in, at this point in history the age of grace anymore. We're in kingdom law. 
where if you step out of line, there's immediate consequences. Uh, Of this time period, Isaiah 11, verse 4 says, He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of, of his lips he will slay the wicked. Psalm 2, verse 9 of this time period says, You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Revelation 12, verse 5 says, She gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Jesus is ruling with a rod of iron. Why does there have to be a rod of iron? Because of these mortals that still have a sin nature. They're kept in check during this thousand year time period. But they're only kept in check because they know if they step out of line a millimeter, there's immediate retribution from Jesus' throne in Jerusalem. It's either you don't get any rain or moisture for your crops or... At the end, fire is just going to consume you. So my point is, once we roll into the millennial kingdom, the age of grace is over. We're living right now in the age of grace where God puts up with a lot of sin without immediate consequences. In fact, as a Christian, you can actually go out and live in sin. Did you know that? not good, but you can do it, and sometimes we think it's okay because I didn't experience immediate justice from God. Why didn't I experience immediate justice from God when I sinned this week? Did any of you guys sin this week? I won't ask for a show of hands. We got one. Look at all the heathen in here. No. Why, Why is it that when we sinned this last week, we fire didn't come down and destroy us because we're living in the age of grace. That's why. By the time you get into the millennial kingdom, the age of grace is over. It's immediate retribution for sinning against God. That's why everybody's afraid to do it. So currently, there can be prolonged carnality. Paul the Apostle says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for for until now you were not able to receive it, and still you're not able. See how they're prolonged in this carnality? Long beyond what what was appropriate. For you are still carnal. For where there are strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? You've been in this state, Paul says, for way too long, carnal Christianity. So here's an example of folks in Corinth basically living in sin as Christians with no immediate retribution. Uh, Paul, the apostle, divides the world into two, the natural or the unbelievers and then the saved. But amongst the saved are the spiritual believers, growing Christians, the infant Christians who are doing things age appropriate, and then carnal Christians who should have moved out of a lifestyle of the flesh a long time ago. You know, 
when a, a newborn is sucking their thumb or a baby is sucking their thumb, that's cute. It loses its cuteness if the child is 16. And you'll notice Paul, as he's describing the world of the save, uses different descriptors, some spiritual, some carnal, some babes, who are actually out sinning the natural man that he describes as mere men. So in the current age of grace, prolonged carnality can be a reality. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not advocating it. I'm not promoting it. I'm just saying it's a possibility. Once the kingdom age starts, you can't have this scenario anymore. You're going to have instant, instantaneous, immediate justice or retribution. And then you go down to verse um, 18. It's describing more rebellion. It says that the family of Egypt does not go up or enter. That's on the Feast of Booths under kingdom law. Then no rain will fall upon them. And it will be the plague which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to worship on the Feast of feast of Booths. You'll notice here the focus on Egypt. Apparently there will be Egyptian survivors of the tribulation who will contribute to repopulating the earth and the heritage of Egypt, the nation of Egypt, will be passed down and actually there will be an Egypt in the millennial kingdom and yet their descendants will be chief among the rebels. Egypt is not going to want to go over worship the king in Jerusalem. So they get no rain for their crops. Um, it's, it's almost as if God has an eye on Egypt because of all of the trouble Egypt caused the nation of Israel in the book of Exodus. He even mentions here plagues. He says it will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations. I mean, God is pretty good at raining down plagues on Egypt, right? Rain down ten of them in the book of Exodus. And this is the kind of thing that will happen. Egypt says, ah, we're not going to go this year to worship the king. In Jerusalem on the Feast of Booths, boom, you get a plague. Boom, uh, no rain for your crops. And so there's a lot of uh, people in the millennial kingdom, they're kind of like, um, they're conforming. But they're only conforming because they don't want punishment. And so within the heart of these mortals, there's this growing hatred against Jesus. Yeah, we're obeying him because we have to. And apparently this mindset at the end of the kingdom will exist in the hearts of so many people that when Satan gives them an opportunity to rebel at the end of the thousand years, uh, the number of the rebels will be as the sand of the sand of the seashore. As you look at verse uh, 19, and we'll, I guess we'll stop there. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of the nations who do not go to celebrate the Feast of Booths. 
So punishment on the nations, punishment on Egypt. Well, my goodness, I've got two minutes left. Can we try to do the last two verses? What do you guys think? We've got the pilgrimage, the punishment, the purity. It says of the purity, verse 20, In that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. So the horses' bells, something common, will be made holy. And then if, as you keep reading, right in the middle of verse 20, it says, And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls after the altar. Verse 21, every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord. So there's going to be such ritual worship purity during the thousand-year kingdom that the the common or the profane is taking on holiness, right down to horses' bells and, and cooking pots. And as you look at the end of verse 21, it says, And all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. And there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord in that day. Now notice this expression, house of the Lord. As people are trying to toss all this stuff into the eternal state, that dog won't hunt. Because in the eternal state, there's no temple, right? Revelation 21, verse 22. What is this house of the Lord? It's the fourth temple. It's the millennial temple. Um, it's described in great detail in the book of Ezekiel, chapters 40 through 48. There's how its dimensions appear in comparison to the tabernacle, Solomon's temple, Herod's temple, football field. I mean, this is going to be an awesome temple, which will, won't have any rivals And actually, the Shekinah glory of God is going to enter into that temple. That's what it's speaking of here when it talks about the house of the Lord. I mean, you would expect a priest to end a book this way, right? His whole life revolves around the temple, and he's focusing on the millennial temple. And he's trying to tell these returnees from the exile, you guys should take the temple seriously, start building it again, because look at God's future plans in terms of temple uh, millennial worship. And then as he's describing the temple purity, he says, And all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them, and there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord. So Canaanites, those that Joshua dispossessed, very wicked group of people, during the conquest of the land of Israel in the days of Joshua, Canaanites will not be allowed in the temple. Um, God said something similar in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 23, verses 3 and 4. He says, No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. 
Now Ruth, a Moabitess, was allowed in because she was not rebellious against the land of Israel. She said to Naomi, your God will be my God, your people will be my people. But the rebellious Ammonites and Moabites that played a role in thwarting Israel's entrance into the land were not allowed into the assembly of the Lord. Deuteronomy 23, 3 and 4, it says, No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter into the assembly of the Lord, because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. I mean, these were people that were bad actors. And because of their sinful patterns and past, God says no Ammonites or Moabites in this assembly. And apparently in the Millennial Kingdom, it's the same thing. No Canaanites. And that's pretty intense ritual purity, isn't it? And I love how the book of Zechariah ends. It says, in that day. So that's an expression that's been used all the way through chapter 14. You see it in verse 1, verse 3, verses 8 and 9, verse 13. And he concludes the book by saying, in that day. So he's describing an eschatological time frame um, when these events will will transpire. So that is how it all ends in the book of Zechariah with the description of Israel's kingdom. As we've studied this chapter, her deliverance, kingdom conditions, the enemy's judgment, and right down to the uh, uh, kingdom worship, which will be characterized by a pilgrimage, verse 16, punishment, verses 17 through 19, and purity right down to cooking pots and horses' bells and no Canaanite entry. Wow. Well, I don't know if you guys enjoyed the book of Zechariah. I had a great time with it. So, <laughs> so next week we're going to start something new. And it's not going to be your best life now or anything like that. I've been praying about it, and I'm, I'm leaning very strongly to teaching the book of Acts on Wednesday night. So you might want to read for next time uh, Acts, the first chapter. So if you've got to take off and collect your kids or what have you, now's a good time to do that. And if uh, anybody wants to do Q&A, we can do that also.